Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we'll be. Happy New Year's um, to everybody. 2012. Got to make it a good one. This might be the last one we have. Um, This is the year um, of... I'm predicting right now, you heard it here, I think things are going to get crazy um, when it comes up to the the time when the world is about to end. Um, if, If you'll remember... The rapture stuff that happened last May, mm-hmm. and then actually again this October, um, but, but last May, that in perspective got momentum over like a course of maybe a month. Um, it was just a few weeks how fast it got momentum. And you, I mean, you remember the day it was happening, everyone was talking about it. People um, had sold their job, or not sold their jobs, they had quit their jobs, sold their stuff, they'd taken their kids out of school um, and gone to evangelize or the world, stuff like that. So put that in perspective to 2012, which has already been on people's radar for years. I mean, there was a movie made about it. So my prediction is this is going to blow up this year. I mean, we're going to be in the middle of a big mess. Um, But that's a great chance, I think, for us to to witness to the truth um, and to our hope in uh, Jesus, no matter what happens. Um, So John 1, uh, 2012, we're here. I'm not a huge Christmas fan, and I know that makes me like the biggest Grinch in the world. Um, But for just a few reasons, I just don't... I like Christmas, it's fine, but I love New Year's. That's like one of my favorite holidays ever. Um, since I was a little kid, and I was going home last night after celebration, and just like, ah, oh, I love this holiday. I think it's because I make a lot of mistakes. Um, and so people who screw up a lot like second chances a lot, and they like to start over again. And so just, I mean, from as early as I remember, I loved the, just the, the thought of, hey, this is a new something. I haven't screwed it up yet. Um, and so uh, New Year's has always been a great time. Um, I think as a, a shadow of the gospel for new starts in Jesus, um, for the grace that he gives us, for the hope that we always have for tomorrow um, and for the rest of the day. Uh, what I wanted to do today, uh, I'll give you kind of a clue what we're doing. Um, today we're going to have a little standalone. Uh, tomorrow, or next week, excuse me, um, next service next week, we will be doing a state of the congregation address. So we usually do that with the budget and leadership stuff, but we moved it back a little bit this year. Um, so next week, January 8th, I'll uh, look back on the past year of the church. We'll look forward, maybe cast some vision, uh, and see what some points of emphasis will be for the next year coming up for FCQ. So that'll be next week. And then the week after that, on the 15th, we'll start our Acts series. So we'll start walking through the book of Acts, um, and I'm looking forward to that. Today, we're going to be in John, um, John 1. His version of the Christmas, Christmas story. Um, and we're going to use this to launch from Christmas into thinking about the church, which we'll be doing next week when we look at our church, and then in Acts when we look at um, the early church. Um, so we have John's Christmas story here. John is a, a completely different gospel than the rest. So you have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and the other three are a lot more normal, I mean, we could say. Um, they're, they're more easy to understand. My favorite quote I've ever heard about the Gospel of John was by a theologian. Um, uh, people who study the Bible tend to stay away from John because it's just, it's hard, it's, it's difficult, it's different. And he said, um, I view John, I view the Gospel of John like I view my wife. I love her, but I just don't understand her. <laughs> I just can't claim to understand her fully. Um, and so John, um, when we get to the Christmas story, we're expecting Luke's version of the Christmas story. Matthew has kind of a smaller version. Mark doesn't have a version at all. Um, and then when we get to Luke, we have the classic kind of Christmas story. They go to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. Um, things like that. Uh, when we get to John, he does the Christmas story. But it's just so out there, and it's so different. I mean, it's almost a letdown from what we're used to in Luke. Um, But there's going to be a lot of things for us to think through. And then again, I think it'll help us transition a little bit um, into thinking about us as the church uh, and FC Cube and Sherland and and just what we're doing here um, as people called by God and given His grace. So we'll read John 1. Um, We'll read uh, through verse 18. Read with me. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay, here's the Christmas story according to John. One little verse here in, in verse 14. If you, you look at it, we'll camp out here for a couple minutes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. John starts off um, here with, in the beginning was the word, capital W word. This is our early Christian title for Jesus. He actually is appealing to both Greek and Hebrew thought here. So those were your two big types of people um, that the early Christians interacted with. The Greeks, the philosophers had this um, real advanced concept of the word. Um, there was this kind of ordering principle um, how we might view like reason or logic or things like that. It kind of held the world together. It can move and do stuff. It was like the really, really smart people who no one liked. They would talk about the word, the logic that holds the universe together. And then the Jewish people talked about the word that God spoke. The word that God spoke that did things and accomplished things. And so he spoke things and they were created. And he spoke things and things happened. And now the early Christians put both of those concepts together and said, the word, Jesus, and the word that was eternal, God, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was with God. The word was God. Um, if you have your worship guide, it's not a behind me, so we'll have to pay close attention here. Um, our first line here is the incarnation is the enfleshing of the eternal God in the person of Jesus. It's a weird word, I know. E-N-F-L, enfleshing. The enfleshing of the eternal God in the person of Jesus. This is how John imagines the Christmas story. We have a baby boy, and John says that baby boy is actually God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This insane concept that blows all of our definitions of what God is and what man is out of the water. It's this mystery that's held up um, here in um, the Christmas story as Jesus is born. Um, this word for dwelt in the Greek um, is actually the word for tabernacle. It's often pointed out uh, or pitched a tent. Um, things like that. It's a temple word. Um, if you remember from the Old Testament, before the actual temple, you had the tabernacle. So when the Jews came out of Egypt, um, God dwelt in a portable tent, in a tabernacle. And this was, according to the Jews, the place where God lived. This was the place on earth where God lived, where he kind of set up his throne. Um, it was where his glory and fullness was. 
And now the scripture is saying, in Jesus, this is where the fullness of God is. This is where the glory of God is. Um, we were talking in our kingdom series uh, about heaven and earth and how they interlock and how they come together and the directions we're going. That we're not going from earth to heaven, but we're actually seeing heaven come to earth, things of that nature. Um, well, it seems here in Jesus, this is where heaven met earth in a full, real, literal sense. And God drew near to man. This was the true temple, John says. This is the place where God came to earth, where they interlocked, where they were one. This is the deep, deep, deep mystery. I think a lot of times we, we have these concepts as Christians, um, and we can verbalize the right things about them, but we might not spend enough time just being in awe of it. Um, and just sitting there and going, what, what, I mean, what actually is that? What, what actually does that create in us? That God became a man. The same God who, according to the scriptures, created all things. So really, really small things. Like he created cells and atoms and, and all the little cellular processes that happen in our body right now. The millions of tiny little things that are happening just for me to be able to talk. I mean, that was his idea. He created all of that. And, and he created big things. So he created the sun and he created the earth and mountains and the Grand Canyon. And he, he created the universe. I mean, galaxies. All of those things, all that power, all that might, omnipotent, omnipresent, became a baby boy and had his diaper changed and was breastfed and learned how to talk. God became a man. God became a human. The word is enfleshed. He dwelled among us. We saw his glory his grace. Let's do a little bit of theology, real fast, okay? Um, just to, to kind of wrap our minds around this a little bit. You have it on the worship guide. Um, Christian theology um, has said this, that when we talk about Jesus, we need to use these terms. He's 100% God and 100% human. 100% God and 100% human. We might call him the God-man, okay? Um, now, this is important because often um, it's easy to, to start talking wrongly about Jesus. In fact, a lot of heresies in the early church were simply that. It was people trying to explain Jesus his incarnation, and not doing it correctly, according to the early Christians and the scriptures. Um, so what 100% God, 100% man means is this. He is not 50% God and 50% man. So he's not um, kind of God and kind of man, as if he loses some of his godness and then loses some of his manness. So he's only kind of God and kind of man, because you've got like an 8-ounce glass, and so you have to put 4 ounces and 4 ounces. The other Christians say, that's not the case. He's not 50% God, he's all God. He's fullness of God. And he's not just kind of like man. He is a man. He's all of humanity. All that entails. 100% God. 100% man. And he's not 100% God or 100% man. As if he had some kind of um, personality disorder. And he could switch. And like, I'm God here or I'm man here. Often, without realizing, I think we talk about Jesus like this. When we read the gospel. So we go, Jesus was doing this because he was God. When he's doing a miracle or things like that. And then we go, um, when Jesus is suffering or crying or doing things like that or dying, we go, this is Jesus as a man. And they're going to show you can't, there's no separation there. He's not God or man. He's God and man. At one time, 100%, all of it. And he's not 100% God-man. As if you could mix the two up uh, and you get a third category. Okay, So you have God and you have man. They don't come together and create a new thing. It's 100% God and 100% man. Difficult to wrap our minds around, right? Well, it's God. 
We should expect such things. If you can put God in a formula, I once heard it said, you should just worship that formula. I mean, that would be much more powerful and interesting than God himself. We're very limited creatures. We run out of the language to use when we're talking about God. Our words reach a ceiling at a certain point. But we go, okay, it was the word and he was in flesh. He became a man. He entered into human history and lived among us. And lived among us. 100% God, 100% man. Now let's, let's draw out a couple implications, okay? We could spend a, a whole long time talking about this. We'll do two um, here. The first one you have here, witness and revelation. The incarnation, it was um, this act of witness and revelation. If you look in verse 14, um, again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we have seen, with our eyes we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from who the father we have seen with our eyes God's glory. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. If you look in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we'd say this, Jesus holds priority in defining who God is and what he's like. Jesus holds priority in defining who God is and what he's like. When you see Jesus, the scripture is saying, you're seeing God. This is what, one of the things it means, one of the implications of the word becoming flesh, is that we haven't seen God, but we've seen Jesus. In John 15, we'll read it in a little bit, um, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've watched me move, you've watched me work, you've seen God himself doing those things. Hebrews um, verses 1 through 3, if you remember back from our Hebrew series, this is an amazing passage. It says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's character. He's the exact representation. When you see Jesus, you see more clearly than anywhere else who God is, what he's like, what he thinks, what he does, more than anywhere else. The Hebrews, in fact, would say in, in the past, God's spoken through prophets. He's spoken through the scriptures, things like that. But those were like a shadow. Those were like whispers. Those were like letters written from afar. But with Jesus, he showed up. With Jesus, we see the reality. With Jesus, the fullness has come. Now, this is an explosive truth, one that I don't think, again, we really let infiltrate our minds enough. Because here's what we do. We like to put God where we'd like to put him and then interpret Jesus through him. And what we end up getting is a, a God of our own mind. A God of our own reason. We like to, in a sense, make God look like us. I mean, it's just human, human nature to do such things. In a fallen world, we want to mold God in our image. It was once commented, God made man in his image and man returned the favor. We make God in our image. If you talk to seven or eight or ten different people and ask them to describe God, you're probably going to get seven or eight or ten different varieties of God. He's going to feel different things. He's going to care about different things. Why? Because it's, it's what we've imagined, what we've brought to the table. And the scripture says, no, but in Jesus we see fully and clearly who God is. And if you come up, here's the priority. He holds priority. If you come up with an understanding of God that does not look like Jesus walking the earth in the first century, the scripture says, you've misunderstood God. Go back to the drawing board. We saw him. We listened to him. It was very clear. So one way we've said this, I've said this before, but I'm still thinking that we're working it out, and I'm still thinking I'm working it out. But the truth of the incarnation here, you've got to catch this, is not, and this is what we normally do, but it's not this. It's not that Jesus is like God. As if we know what God is like, 
And now we just all of a sudden know Jesus is like that. So we read Jesus through our concept of God. The truth of the incarnation is completely opposite and way more explosive. It's this, that God is like Jesus. Not that Jesus is like God, but that God is like Jesus. If you want to understand who God is, you look at him in flesh. Look at him clearly. What we like to do, again, making God in our own image, is we like to <clears throat> come up with um, ambiguities and come up with um, different theories and things like that. And usually, most of the time, what that gets us is out of hard things. It gets us to do what we wanted to do in the first place. So Jesus is very clear about a few things. Like, just very, very, very clear about a few things. Um, but we have our own concepts of who God is. We have our own concepts about what the Old Testament teaches us about God. We have our own concepts about what God would really expect of us. And so we end up ignoring Jesus. We end up not really paying attention to his teachings. I mean, Jesus could not have been more clear about it. Very, very few key things. It's interesting to talk to, um, or look at even the statistics of people who take Jesus literally, who take the Bible literally, and then very clearly don't obey very key things Jesus said. Um, so, particularly in the political world, we're getting into politics these days, right, with the presidential election. Um, there are hot issues, right? There are hot button issues. And so you have the, the where you consider the religious, and they say, no, we're going to die on this hill. We cannot allow this in our society. And usually there are going to be issues that aren't that prevalent in the scriptures. And usually, if you look closely, those people aren't going to be obeying some of the clear issues in the scriptures. So, Jesus is very clear love your enemies. Love them. There's no chance ever. There's no excuse ever to do anything bad to another human being. It would be better for you to suffer and die than for you to cause harm to another human being. But we go, well, we have a concept of God. We have our own ideas. We have um, things we can look at in the Old Testament. And the scripture is saying over and over again, if your concept of God does not look like Jesus on the cross, does not look like him in front of his disciples saying, love your enemy. If they hit you, turn the other cheek. They're saying, go back to the drawing board. Let him define. He holds priority for who God is for you. You don't read the Old Testament and then read Jesus. You read Jesus in the Old Testament. You don't look at the world around you and then try to apply that to Jesus. You see Jesus and interpret the world around you through that. He holds priority. He defines who God is. The word became flesh. Um, now it goes the other way too. 100% God, 100% human. So we could also say this. Jesus is also the truest and fullest human being. Is the goal of humanity. If you look in verse nine or verse four, excuse me, in John one, in him and Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. Think not just breathing and existing um, and growing and moving. Think deep life. Think the difference between existing and living. Peace, joy, justice, satisfaction. In him was life, was everything that was intended for human beings when God thought of them. And created them. It was in him, the light of man. His life was the light of man. Um, Jesus fulfills perfectly what God had intended for humanity. Um, if you look again, um, if you skip down a little bit to verse 9, the true light, Jesus, he, he enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He comes in and he says, this is what humanity was supposed to be. This is what humanity is. This is what it means to be a human being. So I've done this in the past. hasn't caught on. I don't know if it's a stupid idea, um, but I still am I'm pretty keen on it. Um, according to the scriptures, um, a human being, the definition of a human, 
What does it mean to be a human? Is to be an image bearer of God. In Genesis 1, verse 27. What does God call human? That which reflects his image. If it's not reflecting his image, God would not call it a human being. That's what a human is, according to God. So a human being is the highest calling you could ever have. What we've done is we've taken human and we have made that definition a sinful definition, a fallen definition. So we assume a human being is what we are after the fall and not before the fall. So we say things like this. If we screw up or if we fall, if we make a mistake, we go, well, I'm only human. And what I want to do and, and is try to reclaim that word, is try to take that back in, in truth and, and say, I think according to the scriptures, when you fall, when you make a mistake... The problem is not that you're human. The problem is that you're not being truly human. The problem is that in that instance, you're not being a human. That's the problem. You're not bearing the image of God. That's where we get the metaphor of dehumanizing, right? When we use racial slurs and ethnic um, slander and stuff like that, we're, we're dehumanizing someone. We're taking away their humanity. But I think we do that in just the everyday way we talk and see ourselves and see the, the people around us. We're, we're not human enough when we fall. Human being is one who reflects God's image. And so this is where you get Paul in Ephesians and the New Testament um, saying we're being renewed. The community of believers are being renewed in the image of God. We're learning what it means to be human. And who did that? Who did we see that from? Well, Jesus. Think through in the New Testament over and over again. Jesus is called the image of God. The Imago Dei, the image of God. And we think, obviously, of he's God. Okay, so in God we see God's image, right? But it works the other way around. Don't forget, in Genesis... Humans were called the image of God. And we fell. We did not reflect his image the way we were intended to. But one comes who does. A human being. A man. And he shows us what life is. He's the truest and fullest human being. So we could say he fulfills, Jesus fulfills and reveals God's deepest intentions for humans. For humanity. That's what life looks like. So, so Jesus comes, the word in the flesh, the incarnation, and he is a witness. He's a revelation of who God is, who humanity is, or at least is intended to be. He's a, a light shining in the darkness. Um, the second thing we have here, another implication, is redemption and salvation. Redemption and salvation. Look again in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. One of my favorite verses here. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The incarnation was at the center of God's plan for creation. At the center of God's plan for creation was his coming in the flesh to redeem and to save, to fix what was broken, to heal what had been diseased, to find what had been lost. And so he arrives. Um, Notice how John words it here. The light shines in the darkness. So you've got this dark world. You've got this darkness. And the light is shining in it. It's kind of, in a sense, pushing back the darkness. If you think to one of the songs we just sang, it's it's pushing back the darkness. That's what the light does. If there's a dark room, you put a candle in the middle of it, it shoves. It pushes back the darkness. It, It gets rid of it. It evicts it out of its space. So the light comes into the world and evicts the darkness. And notice what John says here. This is, this is so amazing. He says, the darkness has not overcome it. He doesn't tell us the darkness was trying to overcome it. He just says it hasn't. It's not even worth mentioning the resistance. We're just going to talk about the victory. The light shined in the darkness and it hasn't overcome it. And still to this day has not overcome it. Jesus, we could say, his arrival, God's arrival in the Jesus of man was an act of war against sin, death, and Satan. 
It was an act of war. Think back to the kingdom series that we've been doing. God had promised to come in power and might to do something decisive to get rid of the evil that didn't belong in his creation. And when that baby boy cries, it was the sign to the powers that it is on. He's here and things are going to be dealt with. Think through in Matthew's gospel of Herod's reaction to the baby. Herod finds out this baby boy has been born. He was the so-called king of the Jews, so he knew a little bit about what the Jews were expecting with the Messiah. When he found out that this baby was being given the, the crown of Messiah, he said what? Let's kill all the babies. <laughs> if you know uh, about history in the first century, Herod was a maniac, an absolute maniac. I mean, he was just off the wall. Um, his own family hated him. Um, he was paranoid. Um, he was the, one of the wealthiest men alive, we think, maybe in all of history. Um, he hoarded and hoarded and hoarded. He built all these amazing things. Um, when he died, in fact, he had it set up to go kill Jewish leaders so that people would cry for his death. Um, just because he wanted to make sure he'd be mourned um, after he died. I mean, he was a crazy, crazy guy. Darkness, if you would ever think of darkness. And the light comes in. And the darkness very clearly understands what's happening. We're being pushed out. And tries to attack but just like Herod going into Bethlehem and trying to kill the babies, the darkness does not overcome it. The darkness does not overcome it. So the incarnation stands at the center of God's plan for creation, to send a son um, to bring salvation and redemption. It's an act of war against sin, death, and sin. We think of the Christian story often as like a cute little cuddly story, right? It is cute little baby, and it's all soft and nice, things like that. And we don't think of it maybe in more of a cosmic, global, um, big view of history sense. Where it's God coming in and things are going to change. In fact, we usually think of Jesus as being just born to die. And we miss out on a lot of the emphasis we've been looking at in the last few weeks of the kingdom series. Jesus, Jesus did things before he died. He wasn't just born to go to the cross. He had work to do. He comes and, and sin, death, Satan, evil, those things are, are being defeated. This is the exorcisms in the gospel. This is the healing he comes and he's the agent of God's redemption into creation. Um, and then his work, it brings freedom, forgiveness, and healing. We can look in verse 16. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. I love that. Not just grace, grace upon grace. It's a, it's a well that never ends, flowing with grace, gifts, forgiveness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's blessings, his promises to us flow through the work and the person of Jesus. If you look in verse 12 here, to all who did receive him, so he came into the world, but the world did not recognize him as his own. To all who did receive him, however, who believed in his name, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus becomes a man. The Son of God becomes a man. So that men can become the sons of God. He invites us into the family of God. You have this here. He brings us into the family with his accomplishments. The early Christians, they had this saying um, that um, God became man so that man could become like God. Um, this is a very common saying. Now, to us, um, that sounds weird. They were using the word God a little bit differently than we use it. We go, oh, no, we're not God. Um, there are some religions that believe that. Um, Mormonism would believe that we are exalted to a real state of, of God's, Godness um, after we die. Um, but what they were meaning was, was kind of what I said. The, um, the Son of God became a man so that man could become 
a son of God. We could be brought into the family. Um, the idea of having a son who's separate from a father. So this is the Trinity. More crazy deep, right, thoughts. The Trinity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They exist in community. Have you ever thought about that? They exist in community. They love each other. They glorify each other. This dance that early Christians used to call it. This eternal dance they've been in. And what Jesus does when he comes is he invites us into that. He invites us to experience the love and the praise that flows between them. In fact, one of the best explanations I've ever heard about prayer was when we're really in a sweet spot, when we're really hitting the heart of prayer, we're sitting inside of that fellowship. We've been invited into that mystical experience where God the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son, and the Spirit loves the Father. And Jesus comes and says, Come be sons, come be daughters, come be in our family, come exist within us, with us. So he gives them the right to be children, sons and daughters of God. It's the Christmas story going to John, the word becomes flesh, and there's all these different things to work out as we think about that. Um, now, the interesting thing about the incarnation is that in a real sense, and so you have this here, we got to be careful, but in a real sense... The church is a continuation of the incarnation. In real sense, the church is a continuation of the incarnation. So God comes and he enfleshes himself. He makes his presence in the world. Well, Jesus um, dies. He rises again. He goes to heaven. where He's at the right hand of the Father. And who is now God's presence? Who's his body? Jesus takes on a body. The word takes on a body. He becomes flesh. That's the metaphor. The body of Christ, the New Testament says. The church, the believers, those who have received his name, his body, his hands and feet. That's where we get that metaphor. That's where we get that picture that we are. Um, Bonhoeffer would say it like this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say the church is Christ existing as community. His earthly historical existence. Now, you have to be careful here because you can't make Jesus the church. They're two separate things. Jesus is not the church, as if Jesus just kind of, um, after his death, after his resurrection, became a community. Like, he just kind of disassembled, and now it's just us here. No, Jesus is Jesus, the church is the church, they're separate things. And Jesus is right now. I mean, he is right now. Um, so the, the New Testament say Jesus has a body, a glorified body, still has it. He will always be 100% God, 100% human. He's in heaven right now. There's a place where he's at. He's alive. He's functioning. He doesn't just disappear into a group of people. But in a real way, he's now working through those people. In a real way now, how is God present in the world? Well, through the community. The community that's dwelt by the Spirit. Think about this. The New Testament would call believers the temple of the living God. Where Jesus was the full, perfect, complete temple of God. Now the Spirit of God lives in the messes of you and me. The temple of the living God in the world around us, functioning, moving, the body of Christ. Again, you've got to be careful here. You can't conflate Jesus and the church. Only one time in all of history did God incarnate himself in flesh fully and finally, and that was with Jesus. But the New Testament seems to understand that you and I are a continuation of that incarnation in a real but different way, where we are God's presence in the world. So we can say this. We are, the church is both a summons to worship and a call 
to true humanity. We now, just like Jesus did, reflect to the world around us a witness and a revelation that this is who God is. This is what God is like. And we are called to worship. We are called to believe. We are called to follow. We are called to praise. We are called to trust. We are called to hope. This is who God's like. And then the the church is also called to, to testify to what humanity is. This is what it means to be a human. This is what it means to actually exist with other people. This is what it means to forgive and to love and to share and to work. This is what it means to be a human. Now, here's, here's where we, I mean, we're uncomfortable because we don't want this responsibility. We don't want it, and we don't think we should have it. But the New Testament, again, it's pretty clear that you and I, the church, is plan A. There's no plan B. Whether we like it or not, God has created a community of people where he is now dwelling in the midst of them, sending them out as Jesus was sent to us. And what are we doing? Well, just like Jesus' incarnation, we're witnessing. Now again, in a different level. So Jesus was fully witnessing to who God is. He was fully witnessing to who humanity is. And we're not. We're very imperfectly witnessing to who God is. We're very imperfectly witnessing to what a true human looks like. But nonetheless, that's our call in the world around us. Flip to John chapter 17. We looked at this passage a while back in a series called The Divine Scheme where we talked about this, the church being God's plan. In John 17, you have the high priestly prayer right before Jesus dies. Really interesting stuff. Um, We'll pick it up in verse 2. Jesus is praying. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Here again, we have this dance, right? Glorify me as I glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice verse 4 here. I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do. He says, I'm finished. I did what I came to do. He has not died yet. He has not risen from the grave yet. But he utters words very similar to what he says on the cross, which is finished. If you keep reading the rest of the prayer, what he's talking about is the disciples that he has formed. He says, I got a group of men, 12 of them. I've revealed myself to them. I've shown you to them. They're not the, the brightest. They're not the best. Most people probably wouldn't put a bet on them. But I've done it. I've created a community. And so he prays for that community. He says, Father, keep them together. Keep them one. Keep them strong together. Send them out in the world. Set them apart. Don't let them get caught up in other stuff. Set them apart to go do your work. Send them out as you have sent me out. He says, I've prepared the future. I've got things in place. Which is, there's going to be a group of people who go out and they're my hands and they're my feet. Even after my resurrection. If you go again to John chapter 20, flip a little bit more over. This last page will flip and we'll wrap it up here. In John 20, um, verse 19. This is after the resurrection now. Very interesting scene here. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
So as I've come in to witness and to do work, so now you are going to witness and do work. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This great scene where Jesus comes and says, As I've been sent, so now I'm commissioning you, go out, be sent. This is John's version of the Great Commission. Be sent out. And he breathes on them and says, And when you're sent out, you're going to have the breath of the Spirit. You're going to have the power of God, the fullness of God dwelling inside of you, pulsing in you, moving out of you, into the world. And then... He has to end it with this weird verse. If you forgive someone, they're forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. We're like, John, no, no, no. John, that was so beautiful. You're sent out as God has sent Jesus. Here's the Holy Spirit. Go out in power and peace. Don't, Don't do that weird thing about the church. And so we skip this verse and we don't pay attention to it. But in fact, it's actually a part of this whole scene. I mean, it's the other side of this. Surely... Surely, if we don't forgive, if I don't forgive someone in front of me, that's not God saying I don't forgive you. We know that's, that, that can't possibly be the case. But what if we are, actually, if we take it to be truth that we're the body of Christ on the earth, and the person sitting in front of me on Monday afternoon that I show no grace to, that I do not forgive, that I do not show the light of Jesus to, what if in that moment they're not seeing the light of God? What if in that moment I, the temple of the living God, am withholding that from them? In a real sense, the church seems to be a continuation of the incarnation. Lots of things to think about, to dwell on. He sends us as he has been sent. So we can say this, we're called to join God's mission in the world. Just as Jesus um, went around healing and offering forgiveness and doing those things, so you and I are called to do those same things. We're called to offer forgiveness. We're called to call people to believe in God and worship him. Again, this is a different kind of redemptive work okay so jesus um was the gospel he was god's saving plan and we're talking about him and jesus does the real work and we simply are used by him but in a real sense jesus he says there's things to be done and and how am i going to do them well i've got a community i've got a group of people who will do them i think sometimes the christian community sits back and goes What are you doing, God? Why are these people starving in our city? Why is there this oppression happening? And I think Jesus is looking back going, that's a good question. Why? Why did I give you my spirit? Why did I send you out to go do that? Why are we waiting on you to go get an action? As I've been sent, so I'm sending you. 2 Corinthians makes this point very clearly in in chapter 5 that... um, God, when he wants to speak to people, does it through you and I. As though we were his mouthpieces. Again, we don't like that response. We don't want it. But we can't just change the rules because we don't like it. We can say this, we would wrap it up with this. You and I, the church, are not, we're not, we often think of this, but we're not a memorial society for Jesus. We don't just really like the guy and want to remember him a little bit. Which is how a lot of church works. Sometimes we work that way without thinking about it. Where let's try really hard to once a week just come together and remember who he was. As if it was like a a kind of a a pseudo-memorial funeral service. The church said, no, he's alive. He's working right now. He's doing stuff, powerful stuff. And he's doing it through a community. He's got plans for Sugar Land. And he's got FC Cubed. And Williams Trace. 
and Sugar Creek Baptist and First Colony Bible Church. He's got plans for your family and for your coworkers. And he's got individuals with the spirit inside of them. Um, a couple few days ago, I got into it with a friend of mine. Over, uh, he said that if you, I mean, he just went way on a limb. He was very opinionated about this and, and didn't see where it was going to go. So he said, if you canceled church, he was just commenting on, it's like, if you cancel church on Christmas Day, you don't understand the gospel at all. Like, it's just a complete misunderstanding of everything about Jesus. And he didn't realize that I had done that. Um, <laughs> which I think if he had, he would have tempered his stance a little bit. I think he was expected to be like preaching to the choir. Uh, so I'd be like, yeah, they don't. And then I was like, oh, no. Uh, so I pushed back on him a little bit. I was like, uh, I don't think you understand. Uh, uh, church is not service. I mean, it's not a building. It's not service. Um, now, the church is called to get together and have service, worship, teaching, things like that regularly, um, which is what we did the night before Sunday. Um, I was like, but, but, but I think maybe you're kind of missing out on some of the key points there. Um, and then I was like, and to be honest, man, we had church Sunday morning. We actually had church maybe more powerfully than we usually do on Sunday morning. We had church at 50 different places. We were multi-site. <laughs> we were in all kinds of houses. We were in different states, actually. But we had church. We had church Monday. We have church Tuesday. We have church Wednesday. We have church Thursday. No church on Friday, but church on Saturday. I'm kidding. We had church on Friday. Was it? The spirit of God moving in the world. Again, you can't conflate us. We aren't the mission, but we're used in the mission. We aren't Jesus, but we're used by him. So here's the question I have. You have it here. Will we be faithful? Will you be faithful as an individual in your families, in your workplaces? Will we be faithful as a church? So we hit 2012. There's a time where if we've gotten off track in the past year or so, this is a great time to, to just kind of use some motivation, a new start, the new year, to get back on track. Reading our scriptures, maybe. Digging into community, being intentional about it. This is a good time for our church to kind of look back, like we will be doing next week, on where we've been, what we've been doing, and, and where we need to go in the future. How we can better be a witness and revelation to the community. This is the love we've seen in Jesus. This is the work he's called us to. Well, my prayer would be as we... we contemplate the incarnation and then start moving into contemplating the church we see how the work of God has so captured our hearts and so saved us powerfully um, and then included us to go in that we're, we're not a memorial society we're not uh, just waiting there's there's things to be done and, and it's, it's like a father letting his son come, come work on the car with him or come play ball with him or, or like a mother letting her daughter come cook with her but she doesn't need help she doesn't need a three-year-old trying to stir the pot. She's doing what? Come play with me. I want, I want you to experience the joy I have. I want you to be close to me. I want you to be in my family. Come play with me. And so the, the question is, would we be faithful? Would we, would we follow him into the future? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. Um, I thank you for...